conversations. Welcome to Strong Conversations with Carolyn Strong. I am not Carolyn Strong. My name is Tamara Winfrey Harris, and I am your moderator for this evening's conversation. But before we get started, I want to share with you some facts from a 2020 Washington Post article by Subini Anama and David Stovall. So here, five facts. According to a 2018 report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, Black youth are 15.5% of all public school students, but represented about 39% of students suspended from school. And this disparity is not based solely on differences in behavior. Black girls are suspended at a rate five times that of white girls. I think that it may actually be six times now. Black disabled youth are more likely to be educated in segregated classrooms and less likely to graduate than disabled white students. Queer and gender non-conforming Black youth are also disciplined at high rates and often not protected by the safe spaces created for white LGBTQ youth. And advanced placement and gifted classes largely exclude Black youth, students left out of gifted programs, and those pushed into special education get reductive curriculum teaching that values compliance over learning and relationships that prioritize surveillance. So that raises a critical question, do Black lives matter at school? We have an amazing panel assembled to discuss the challenges inherent in a biased system for Black children and solutions for educators parents and our communities. First, I want you to, to introduce you to the woman of the hour, the woman who makes this platform available to us, Dr. Carolyn Strong. Dr. Carolyn Strong can best be described as a light bringer with plenty of shade. The firebrand for the culture is an educator with more than 15 years of experience working in urban education passionate about educational equity and rewriting society's often inaccurate narrative of Black women and girls, Dr. Strong strives to empower administrators, teachers, and students to exemplify these values on a daily basis. Dr. Strong holds master's degrees in both curriculum and educational leadership and a PhD in curriculum and social inquiry her dissertation entitled Black Girls Matter, question mark, historical representation and its impact on contemporary education highlights the need for safe spaces for African-American girls. Furthermore, Dr. Strong is the author of Black Girl Blues, small group sessions, activities and discussions to combat intraracial bullying, a book that has been utilized as both an alternative to suspension 
and small group intervention in schools across the United States and Canada. When she is not writing or presenting, you can catch her co-hosting Centering Sisters with me, a podcast for Black women by Black women or hosting Strong Conversations right here, Hot Takes from a Cultural Firebrand. Hello, Dr. Strong. Hey. And next, I'd like to welcome Dr. Tina Curry. Dr. Curry has been an educator in Chicago Public Schools for 23 years. A middle school te- as a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, a literacy coach, a literacy specialist, an instructional coach, and an equity coach. Dr. Curry is currently a middle school teacher at Ambrose Plamadon. I hope I've pronounced that correct. Uh, correctly, STEM Elementary School in Chicago. She's also an adjunct professor at National Lewis University in the National College of Education and an adjunct at DePaul University, the Office of Innovative and Professional Learning. Dr. Curry is an expert in equity in education and provides service as an equity consultant. She's trained educators in culturally responsive teaching and equity practices as an acclaimed public speaker and advocate for equity and justice in education. Dr. Curry has delivered keynote addresses locally and nationally. She is a contributing author for Teaching Racial Equity, Becoming Interrupters. Her current research includes culturally responsive teaching, equity and diversity in literacy and school leadership. Welcome. Dr. Curry. Good evening. Also welcome Jasmine Stiles, an Illinois licensed school psychologist with specialties in school discipline reform, restorative practices, and bullying prevention and intervention. In addition to working full-time at a large urban high school, she is faculty in the school discipline reform certificate program at Loyola University, training school-based professionals and leaders alternative to discipline. Jasmine, welcome. Good evening. Thanks for having me. And Mia Tatum Kreider is a professional school counselor, is passionate about providing all students and families with services and programs to support and enhance their academic, social, emotional, and mental health and wellness. As educational inequities are not inevitable, she utilizes her voice to advocate for all students and families. As a board member for her state school counselor association, she presents at conferences to increase awareness of the school counselor's vital role, as social justice leader, advocate, and disruptor of racism and bias. Mia has been a school counselor for 10 years and previously taught physical education and health education for five years. With a genuine love of learning and a desire to lead school counselors, she's currently pursuing a PhD in counselor education and supervision. Mia continues to work toward creating educational and systemic changes to support student success. She's currently school counselor at the middle school she attended as a youth within a suburb at Mil- in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her unique lens as a former student and woman of color provides a platform to utilize her voice and a strong passion to disrupt educational practices and policies that are harmful to students and families of color. A message of hope she shares with students and families 
It is possible and it will be worth it. We must remember that through our struggles, we can find strength, stay hopeful. Welcome, Mia. And last but certainly not least, Dewan McNair Lee. Dewan began her teaching career as a third grade teacher at the Capitol Hill Cluster School in Washington, DC. While teaching third grade, a principal noted her success in delivering language arts instruction and suggested she move to the middle school campus to teach English language arts. Since then, she spent the last 18 years as a reading English arts teacher, journalism teacher, school-wide enrichment model coordinator, adjunct professor, and reading and writing specialist in various school communities in the District of Columbia and Prince George's County, Maryland. Her career has been punctuated by acknowledgement of her effective teaching. During her first year of teaching, she was nominated for a district-wide first year teacher award. She's also the recipient of the prestigious David Rubenstein Award for highly effective teaching. She's also served as a grade level team leader, content area team lead, student teaching cooper cooperating teacher and program administrator of accelerated education programs at the elementary and middle school levels. She has also taught at the collegiate level at both Howard University and Trinity Washington University. She is currently a doctoral candidate at the, the George Washington University in curriculum and instruction with a specific interest in the various factors involved in the retention of Black women teachers. Welcome, Dewan. Hi, everybody. And welcome, panel. I mean, as, as you could hear, we have a stellar group of educators right here. And so I want to ask what I hope is an easy question. I don't want to make any assumptions. Do Black lives matter at school? Yes or no? Round robin, Dr. Strong. Okay, you're on mute, but your face told me what I needed to know. Dr. Curry. I have data that says they don't. Jasmine, Ms. Styles. My short answer, um, I would say, do we matter? In a sense, yes. Valued, no. Um, but we we are necessary in some spaces. That's my short answer. Ms. Tatum. Well, you know, I want to say what I would like to say, but I want to say in my heart, I want to say yes, but collectively, I'm not sure if it's on everybody's non-negotiable. And Ms. McNair-Lee. Um, I would love to say yes, but um, I would have to say when we look around, the answer would be no. So I'd love to have some of you expound on that. And I'm going to start with you, Dr. Strong, because your face said a thousand words. So oh, yeah. Why, why, that, why that skeptical face? Why Halfway through decade that? four, I'm still working on my face. Um, <laughs> I think that um, when you've been in these spaces for as long as I have, there are some things that should just you shouldn't have to fight for. 
and the fact that when you're in predominantly black school spaces, you're fighting for the simplest of things, things that you would think would be just givens. Um, you couldn't possibly like, why, why am I fighting for things like the kids right to go to the bathroom? Like, why, why am I fighting for basic human rights almost? So um, that was one of the things that sparked this this panel discussion for me. I believe I was having a conversation with Dr. Curry um, and, and the idea for this came out and the question became like, you know, we're dealing with COVID and everybody's fighting to get, get schools back to normal and nobody's acknowledging the fact that for a lot of our kids, normal sucked. So what are we going to do to fix that? But I'm not going to, I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> so I'm going to ask Dr. Curry because you said I have data that proves that they don't. And so for anyone watching this who is skeptical um, and you know who doubts that Black lives do not matter at school, what, what data would you offer them? Actually, it's the data that you just read and anybody who's been in education for even just a few months probably has access to that, to that data as well. We wouldn't have the outcomes that we have if Black lives matter. Um, at school, I was just talking to um, to um, a really close friend of mine, and he was sharing with me a video of a little black girl being handcuffed um, by police because she just had a little temper tantrum. She may have been six or seven years old, and um, she was just crying because the principal wanted to take her sunglasses away from her, and her hands were so small that he couldn't use handcuffs. He had to use zip ties um, to tie her hands behind her behind her back. And I just remember just thinking, like, I wonder if that would have happened had she been a different skin color, if she had blue eyes and blonde hair, would she had would that have happened um, to her? Um, and then the school to prison pipeline, mm -hmm. how schools criminalize black girls. So um, Mia Tatum. So, you know, Dr. Curry just mentioned a couple of the things that contribute to Black students' poor experiences in school. So we talked about the, the over-policing, um, over-suspend, you know, suspensions at different rates and other students. What are some other things that contribute to poor experiences for Black children? Um, I would probably have to say uh, from the school counseling lens is the um, deficit-based language sometimes utilized with our students and the minimizing expectations, uh, especially in the high school counseling realm. I feel like sometimes that could be extremely detrimental um, for someone to minimize your goals and your dreams and your aspirations based on assumptions. Um, and also just people not wanting to own their implicit bias and the microaggressions that our students have had to endure for years. Um, and just them not understanding or, or wanting to probably come in with a colorblind perspective. I think that also impacts our students a lot. We cannot be colorblind because that means you don't see me, you don't see my experiences, you know, and you don't kind of value or appreciate me as a person. So, you know, that's interesting. Some of those things, like the idea of colorblindness, is a problem that often happens with non-Black educators. So somebody tell me, 
Dewan, Jasmine. So are you saying that, you know, in our in our many black schools with mostly black students and black instructors, are the outcomes better? Because we often hear that if only we could return to segregation um, as if we left it, um, things would be better. Well, thank you so much for, for calling me to the plate on this one. Um, <laughs> I often say that um, Black folk, when we are indoctrinated in white supremacist systems, um, we often will function in white supremacist ways and will function as tools of white supremacy. And having been through schools um, that are largely set up for white folk, for the benefit of white folk and being one of the black folk that was successful as a fluke, as a, you know, a cog in the wheel. Um, it gives us this perception that the system worked for us. So why shouldn't it work for everyone else? And my personal story is exactly that. For my first few years of teaching, I was in a tizzy because I didn't understand. I did great in school. How come you did? You cannot. And I did not understand that I was not supposed to do well. The system was not designed for me. And when teachers had that belief that everybody's supposed to do well in this system and that the system itself is fine and the children are the deficit, Black folk can believe that, too, because we can be tools of white supremacy. So, yes, Black teachers are effective, but only if those Black teachers are working for the benefit of Black students and recognizing, calling out their own biases and white supremacy. You know, sis, you just said a lot. <laughs> you said a lot. Um, and it was a lot of what I was thinking, the same path. And I think something in my in my experience so far, I just have to keep pinching myself and saying, all skin folk ain't kin folk. And so I think really that mentality is everything. And I think, Mia, even how when you started, when you talked about accepting that, um, gosh, some of these things are so deeply engraved, you know, we don't even realize it's something that we're doing. Right. And so um, I, I truly think that for the betterment, like you said, like you said, Ms. Mayor, for the betterment of the kids. Yes. And I think if our teachers are truly allowed to break out of this square that teaching has become, um, we have been master educators since before we could even read and write. So mm -hmm. the criterion base sometimes doesn't always fit. Um, the best way that we know how to educate our own kids. And so I think there's uh, both of those things at play. The mindset has to be right, but then also allowing the avenues to do something different and innovative that really does match the demographics of who's sitting in front of you. So I'm glad you talked about that, Jasmine. And this is, this is for anyone. So if you could, if, if, if if you educators on the screen right now, the five of you were co-creating a school and a school system that actually was nurturing and positive for black students, what would that look like? What would, you know, what would be the criteria for a system that worked better for our children? I'm, I want to go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ms. Jasmine. I spoke over you. Um, school counselors and school social workers, and I think some some true, um, just intentional money put towards the mental health of our people. And you know, maybe the, the school mental health model we need um, to have some services available in the building so that that's not another roadblock. They can go 
right down the hall and see maybe the therapist or the counselor. Mm-hmm. A thousand percent. And, and I think it's similar as, as I'm a school psychologist, you know, we tend to work with our mm-hmm. social workers and our counselors a lot. Um, and I think for me, a big piece is truly bridging that gap again between the school and the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 it really seems like though that's part of where a lot of the naivety comes in for our parents, because as we as educated people sometimes come in and start talking over people's heads instead mm-hmm. of being level with them to make sure this, that they under that we understand right? That we get it. Um, and so I've seen in my experience, there's sometimes you're met with some hesitation, right? Because sometimes people think you're, you're, all of our experience hasn't, hasn't been positive. All of our mm-hmm. interactions have been positive. And that's what I like to remind people when we come across parents, for example, that are, that come off as abrasive or they're not trusting, we, we tend to discount that their experience may not have been the best either. And so taking the time to really be intentional about fostering that relationship, that parent education, their inclusion in their decision making and what, what's happening for their kids, that would be something that I would definitely want to focus on. And having been someone um, who has worked closely with leaders, so I've sat in on so many interviews and I, our school leaders have got to stop hiring people who don't value black lives. We got to stop hiring people who don't love black children. Uh, we have to increase our accountability um, standards and we have to stop adopting policies that create inequities for our young people. In addition, in addition, they, my answer is going to be um, couple folded. Um, I do want to address the question about what about the schools that don't have that available? I think the issue is that schools should have those services available. Um, I have often said, I don't believe that any child that comes through school doors should be put into a classroom before they have an ACEs assessment. Because let's just be fair, being being black in America, especially right now, automatically is giving you some aces and some trauma. And that's before you even get to the residual trauma or the generational trauma and the things that that we're unpacking. So before you walk in the door, let's start focusing more on Maslow and getting and getting your basic needs met before we start trying to talk about higher order thinking. And it goes back to the basics. When you walk into a classroom day one of teacher education, they tell you, you can't teach a hungry child. Like that's day one. You can't teach a hungry child. You need to do this and you need to do that. And you need to make sure that those basic needs are taken care of. But somehow um, the racialized trauma that happens to our children on a daily basis doesn't count as, as having needs met. So that's that's a big piece of what of what we of what we need to do. The other piece um, is, again, creating some positive experiences, because I know given what I do in discipline, when people pick up when they see it's me, they pick up the phone and go, what now? Because most of the time when I'm calling, I'm calling because there's an issue. So what I try to do and I'm not always great at it. But what I try to do is be intentional about making about making positive phone calls as well to change that expectation that every time you see my number pop up, it's to to tell you some more mess about your child, for lack of a better phrase. 
So and I'm going to go to you, Dewan, but I just wanted to recap some of the things that we've already heard, which is, you know, one, a supportive environment for our children would include mental health support being available on site. It would include um, an ACEs assessment for all. Um, programming that bridges the gap between school and community, faculty that values Black lives, no exceptions, um, a school that minds the basic needs and deals with racial trauma, and an effort to create positive experiences with guardians and parents. What else, Dewan? So the Bible says that you can't put old, new wine in old bottles. So we had the dramatic opportunity during COVID to be able to do something creative and new and different. And instead, it was this rush back to what we had been doing. And we were hell bent on this traditional model of schooling that meant that children had to be in a building for five days from eight to three or seven to two or whatever that looked like. When in fact, we saw that there's data that there were students who were extremely successful at home, learning at home, doing their assignments on flexible schedules. We saw that. We saw that there were black children who were doing well, not in school for many myriad reasons. Some of them, it just was because they don't need to be in school five days a week, all day long. My principal and I sat down and realized that much of our school day is about warehousing students. Kids are getting what they really don't need all day long just to have them there. And my thing is, if we were to actually create schedules for students where they were able to take advantage of what was happening in their city, what was happening in their towns, but also can we create schedules for students where it's not keeping them in a building for eight hours a day, warehousing them in ways that's ineffective? What if a student just needed to take reading, math, and social studies in a music class and they can go home? Or they can go to their part-time job, or they can go to an internship somewhere, or they can go take a dance class at the Kennedy Center. And I know I'm in D.C., so we have access to different things, but every place has these things or something. And I'm like, we wasted this opportunity to really do, in my opinion, some really dope and innovative things. So I'm like, if I want to create a school that's going to value Black students, let's look holistically at this child's life and let's create a school experience for that child, not for a band of children, not for the children in that town, but an experience for that child that is going to benefit that child and have that child know that when they come out of this schooling experience, it's not something that they need to heal from, but it's something that's going to benefit in their life. Can I just interject one second and say dope and innovative doesn't allow me to go and work my job? Because that's what this really boils down to. I mean, we saw how folks lost their minds and they were like, when are the kids going back to school? It's not safe, but I got to go to work. I mean, we're babysitters. <laughs> and here, I know here in Chicago, um, it was just stated from a political representative that the reason that our, our teenagers were involved in so many carjackings was because we were on remote learning. So, well, and this is not about that. Too. It's that, the same thing in D.C. But, but but was it actually stated though? It was actually stated. Literally, yes, it was in an official press conference mm -hmm. that remote learning, because the students were not in the mm -hmm. building, was the reason why 
are like crime hasn't already been a thing or like are those really the same kids that were in school anyway <laughs> when we when we weren't on remote learning yeah. right so when we start thinking about you know we have our research minds sometimes we're we're picking things apart like um that doesn't cause that like and so but this this was this was something that was publicly stated so i appreciate you even adding that because there are people who are in charge of major places Exactly. Allocating the resources, the ones who say, well, this is important. This isn't important. And these are some of these are some of the um, <laughs> these are some of the statements that are being made. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the other thing that things that happened because we were in remote learning. None of my students were suspended. They did not have to serve a detention. They were not expelled from school. They did not have test scores, you know, sorting them like dirty laundry, putting them in categories. None of that happened during remote learning either. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of leadership, a lot of power, a lot of stakeholders, powers that be, instead of viewing school as a place where students can learn and grow, um, see it as a Band-Aid to make up for um, social gaps. Um, and, and problems that they don't have to solve as long as we can warehouse children and have teachers watch them for for throughout the day. Watch, right? Watch, watch. not always teach, but watch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Schooling is an important arm of capitalism, especially in this country. Um, and as long as public education is working as in partnership or as a cog in the capitalist wheel, we will never be free of these issues because as long as we see public education akin to, like Carolyn said, Dr. Strong said, people being able to go to work, this happening, great, get out of school so you can get a good job, do this so you can get a good job, do that, blah, blah, blah. We do this so we can pay this test company, we do this. So like, there's a lot, there was a lot of money lost in capitalist world when we were, when children were at home doing well. There was a lot of money lost in a lot of places where children really weren't benefiting from that money exchanging hands at all. I so mean, as long yes. as- Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, so as long as schools are part of capitalism, we're always going to experience this. I mean, yes, and, and we fully acknowledge that not every child was doing well. And I think that had the things, I mean, we were in an emergency situation. The e-learning piece was really a triage piece. I mean, let's, let's be real, at least here mm -hmm. in Chicago, my baby was supposed to be at home for two weeks and she ended up being at home for 18 months. She went back mm -hmm. to school as a second grader, left school as a kindergartner. So um, we didn't really have time to sit with this the way we would have. And even in that, there were kids that thrived. So imagine if we put the time and the resources into, into really doing it for real, like what we did, was really triage and if we put the time into doing it for real and instead of this all or nothing thing that we're doing like you have parents saying hey my child was doing great in remote learning can we go back to that but they aren't able to because the powers that be have said no COVID is COVID is over now so you need to be in school and there really aren't remote learning options for those parents who learned that their kid actually did better in those spaces and to your point about industrialization, 
I mean, schools were built for industrialization. Let's not act like the bells in the building were not put there to mimic the bells in the factories so that you can move with the bells in the factories. And when you and when you get into school spaces that operate more Socratically, who have openly acknowledged that they're building and growing CEOs and not employees, those schools don't have bills. So I got two questions. And the first one is, is this. So for, for people like you, experts, educators, what do your colleagues need to be doing in the spaces? Like what, what difference and what change can you make? So what is the key from the educator end of like mitigating some of the damage that the system does to black students? One, I think we have to accept it. Um, and, I, and I've always said <laughs> that being a part of the public school system is a, is a really, it's a, it's a huge piece of cognitive dissonance. Um, and because I know it wasn't meant for us, right? It really wasn't, it wasn't built for us. Um, it wasn't meant for us. And to see the, the effects that it, that it still has as we're forced to be in it in a certain way, um, it, it really saddens me. Um, and so I just lost train of, girl, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought that fast. <laughs> It's okay. It happens. Forgive me, please. I think we need to have respect for educators. Yeah. Um, and and we don't. Um, and I I've said this time and time again. It's like we have always been considered pseudo professionals. And and I and I don't like that because in what other space can you walk into and and start doing the job? before you're licensed to do the job. Like you're not gonna walk into a hospital and somebody hand you a scalpel on day one and say, well, the rest will be on the job training. Like that, that doesn't happen. Um, nobody's putting you in a courtroom on day three of law school. Like those things don't happen. And I think that part of what happened during the pandemic is that people really had the opportunity to see that teaching wasn't what they thought it was. It's like, all right, I'm going to sit here and we're going to talk about Johnny and his three apples. And then you're going to tell me what happens when Johnny has three apples. And then, you know, Johnny's three apples get louder and louder. And you're like, why Johnny don't know what happened with these three apples yet? Because you weren't trained to teach Johnny what to do with his three apples. I was. <laughs> so I'll leave it there. And that reminds me, <laughs> back to the question, because that's where I was trying to go. We have to accept it and be willing to change it. Um, and, mm -hmm. and one thing that I've, I, I know a lot of my, in my educator friend circles, people have talked about getting rid of tenure because sometimes that protects some of those people who are so hesitant to actually changing and evolving with the, with the students that are in front of them, changing with the times, the methodologies, and getting rid of those super old oppressive pedagogies that were taught in the teacher preparation programs a lot of times. And so that is a big piece of being able to accept it, be real about it, and then start to, to evaluate, okay, what pieces can I really start to do differently? 
what can I be doing that can be a little bit more beneficial to our students in a way that might be a little bit different than how we're thinking about it. And, you know, and I think educators, we have to become like interrupters. I learned this best from my mm -hmm. friend who said that inequities don't change just because we identify them. And systems don't change because we identify them. We have to like disrupt them. And I think that when we stand idly by and we see bad things happening in our buildings and to our children and we don't do anything, to me, like you're contributing to the problem. You're maintaining the status quo. You're contributing to mm -hmm. the status quo. So we have to like stop willful, willingly participating in systems that don't serve our children well. And I see that happen every day. Teachers just willingly participate in things that just don't benefit children. So we got to change the way we do school. Jasmine, someone on YouTube wants to know or wants to points out that if you get rid of tenure, it's black teachers who will be fired more often. Yeah. Now, you know, I just brought that up as an example. And I know that can be a very complex kind of topic but i think my main thing about that was a lot of the teachers that have in my experience a lot of the the, the teachers that have had a lot of issues with students that are consistent the administrators know right but what stops them from being able to really enact or enforce some things is the block of tenure um and so and maybe it's just the way that it's used right now. And so I really just brought that up as those sometimes who have been there for a long time. I've seen some teachers who are still using curriculum and things from the 80s and the 90s. Right. So and those are the ones that have been here for a long time. And there's nothing wrong with the tenure, but making sure it's protecting the right people and that tenure is protection, but also still being able to evolve and change with the times. So what should, so we, can, we kind of talked about what educators should be doing, but what about the public? So what are the, the, the policies that the public should be supporting that actually make for schools that are better for our children? So um, one thing, can we just call out this whole anti-CRT business? Like, yeah. Nobody in a K through 12 classroom is teaching critical race theory. Let, let's just have that conversation, first of all. So stop wasting your breath. The second thing, slavery happened. Get over it. It happened. It happened. Somebody in this country who's a descendant of those people owned some slaves at some point. And some of us who still here were probably the descendants of those slaves. It happened. It's okay to talk about it. We keep having these arguments that are silly and stupid, and it's taken away from the real conversations that we're having, that we need to be having in these school spaces. Um, they're banning books. Why, why are you banning books? What secrets do you think these books have that children aren't going to find out by looking on the internet? This is dumb. So we really need to be having conversations about things that really matter in these school spaces. Are teachers getting paid enough? Do children have access to basic things when they help teaching and learning go better? Is there toilet paper in the bathroom? Is there paper towels in the bathroom? Do teachers have paper towels and pencils in their classrooms? Like, those are the real conversations we need to be having. Have we updated the curriculum in the textbooks in the last 10 years? If I walk through your classroom, how much of the rich print text did you not purchase yourself? Right. 
So like of my classroom library, how much is it that I haven't carted around over 18 years of my career? Like, let's have the real conversations and let's let the public have the real conversations instead of falling for these straw man arguments that are really annoying and irritating at this point. Go into your students' classroom. I mean, that was the other thing. Like, virtual learning gave you the opportunity to see and hear what's happening. And so after all of that time, you come out of that, and that's what you come away with? Like, really? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so... Uh, <sighs> I have almost taken to my bed with that. <laughs> <laughs> Mia, what do you think? Um, I would probably have to say um, that having a... If we're speaking district wide, we they there are the the public or the community needs to be aware of equity audits, um, equity audits particularly geared towards curriculum that is provided to our children, and letting the community also be involved in the curriculum that is chosen. Because if these are your children that are going to be participating in this curriculum, why not let them have a voice in what is chosen that is going to meet and fit their needs. Um, so I think that would be also a, a, a true, real policy about equity. Uh, what does that look like in your schools? Anything else? What policies, what policies should the public be supporting? Um, I, I want to chime in there, too, because I think sometimes some of our policies focus on the wrong stuff. Like I am a part of a work group right now in Illinois that um, through the work of a parent by the name of Ida Nelson has finally got something on the books in Illinois saying that if you receive any type of state funding for your school, you can't discriminate against natural hair. It's 2022. And we are just getting laws on the books that say you can't, you can't discriminate against Black students showing up as their authentic selves. And no one has ever been able to explain to me how those braids, that the purple hair, that Afro or that head wrap was an impediment to teaching and learning in the first place. No one, no one has ever been able to explain that to me. And um, Tammy, you know this, like I will tell anybody, I'm like, I am here to show little black girls that you do not have to choose between purple hair and a PhD <laughs> because... <laughs> Why should you? And and what does that have to do with, with the curriculum at large? And why is nobody else, nobody else's authentic self policed in such a way? Like we we're still policing black bodies. And until we stop policing black bodies, we're going to have the these issues. And and the way that they're policed has changed, not much, but has has morphed and evolved but you telling me that this is a problem for your educational setting how so i want to i want to pivot to talking about parents because there are a lot of parents that recognize that these things are wrong and the parents that do often don't know how to advocate successfully for their children. They don't know how to advocate, certainly when they walk into um, 
schools and places that that where people don't look like them, the leadership and the teachers don't look like them. But I also don't know how to advocate when the people do. So what do you tell parents? How do you advocate for your children successfully in um, in school? Dr. Curry. So I thank you so much for asking that question. Um, so I've always encouraged parents to like, they really have to educate themselves. Like parents need to be aware of the policies that are in their schools. They need to know the teachers who are teaching their children, know their background. Like they need to know what the curriculum is, what are teachers putting in front of their children. And they need to just ask like questions. You know, <laughs> black parents, we show up for the report card pickup. The teacher tell us, look, look, Eric has been acting up. We go home and beat the crap out of our kids. So it's like, but no, don't do that. Like, let's talk and find out, okay, what's happening here? So I think if parents were able to like push back, that would just change the whole outcome of that of that conversation and not feel so intimidated. So I've seen that happen to where parents feel really intimidated. And even school wasn't a great experience for them. So like they don't even want to come in the building because it's such it, it just brings up just trauma of what they experience in schools themselves. Um, and so that that would be like my my short answer, like parents have got to like, yeah, get educate themselves, build relationships with those teachers, um, become familiar and just make sure even research schools before you start deciding where you want to take um, have your child to go to school. Make sure that school is a good match for your for your child. I think those See, are that's the Chicago speaking you because when you leave Chicago, you don't have choices. <laughs> what, what's your address? Bet this is where you going. <laughs> that's it. That's all. And when you're in those community schools, that's when you see those cycles, especially if you've been in a place for a long time. Sometimes you will hear parents say, I had the same issue when I went here. Mm. Um, and it's it's those same those same issues being revisited on the child, and you looking at this parent, and you going, "Dang, it's been like this for this long. It hasn't changed in this long." Mm -hmm. And I think that um, schools need to be more intentional because the key word through all of this is going to be intention. They need to be more intentional about giving parents the tools for advocacy. But oh, I part of me understands why they don't because with the tools for advocacy comes accountability. And accountability is harder than doing what's easy. And what do you say to the parent that says, I would love to be involved in advocating for my child. I got three jobs. I'm trying to keep food on the table for my child. I can't be at school. You know, I can't, I don't feel like I can do the research. I don't even know what I'm researching. Like what exists to support those parents? Does anything exist to support those parents? If we extend our definition of what it means to support our children, when a child walks through the door and mom or dad says, how was school today? What did you learn? That's support. When the mom says, hey, let's go to the library and let's pick out a book for you. Like that's support. Parents don't always have to actively be in the school. Parents support children in ways teachers never see and sometimes in ways that teachers don't respect or even acknowledge because it goes against what they consider parental support and engagement should look like. But our parents, I find them to be very supportive. Mia, I see you nodding your head. What would yes. you add to that? I, I think that um, that is very true, Dr. Curry, because I feel like sometimes 
um, the school side might say, oh, well, they haven't been to this and they don't come to that. Um, but um, or they're not or in this uh, parent organization. Uh, but we don't know what is going on in that in that family's home. So we can't assume that they are not very involved. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe their children just don't share everything that they do because they could be going to museums and to the library, like you said, or being um, going to uh, story time. Like we don't we really don't know. But I do feel like we do. Um, say, oh, that's the really, really involved family. They really, really care and they want their child to succeed. Um, and I do feel like um, I was doing a little research on this because I thought I was going to do some of my PhD stuff on it is uh, aff affinity spaces for um, for our families. Like we need like just a space where certain things could be discussed if you are in a school system that where where you are not the majority. Uh, but then some some of the studies were saying how they were not. Um, well, there was no real research and studies that said that they're beneficial. Uh, but I think that is very um, impactful to have a space for other parents and families um, with people that look like you, maybe like minded. We just all um, trying to navigate these spaces together and survive um, to just get together and empower each other. Um, but I haven't been able to find a study that really demonstrates. So if any of you could help me out with that, that would help. I would appreciate it. Sharon asks on YouTube, does CPS still have a PTA? Chicago Public Schools, are there still PTA? That's a good question. I'm not sure. So in my school where I just left, I was there for six years. We had a PAC. It was a parent advisory um, committee. We did have that, but that's a good question. I'm not sure. So I'd like to ask a final question and that is, you know, last words, you know, for people listening to this who want to make a difference in the lives of black students, what is the one thing you want them to take away from this conversation? Dewan? Oh, me. Um, I think we can loop back around to your first question um, about do black lives matter in school? And my answer was censor around that. And my answer would say, we have to censor black lives in school. It's not gonna magically happen by some osmosis or some lift. It's gonna happen when we, those that are in schools, those who work in the schools, those that send their children to the schools, those that create policy, when we consciously decide to censor and demarginalize these children and put them in the center of policy, put the center in practice, put them in the center of practice. And when we say you just don't matter, but you are censored and we're not doing you, we're not working with you as an ancillary part of this, but we're working with you as part of the center. Um, and when we're able to do that, when we take on that responsibility of doing that, um, I believe that that's when we will start to see a sea change for our children and for our children's children. Um, lives are at stake here. And when we understand the importance of that, I believe we will see a shift. Thank you, Mia. Um, I'm sorry, one of the twins was just running by. I was about to mute. Um, so sorry. Um, I would have to say that I do feel, um, when I think about like Black Lives Matter, I think of my, you know, my daughters and myself walking through the same halls that I went to as a youth, um, in the same suburb, 
where I feel like I, I am sometimes seeing the same things that have sometimes harmed me occurring still um, that I just want to make sure that, that we do understand that there's sometimes there are lives that matter and we do need to make sure that everyone who is in a position of power, which is an educator, even though sometimes they don't like to admit that we do, we are um, leaders, even though people don't want to use or listen to our voice and use it sometimes, but we can um, help, uh, you know, support our children and um, encourage them to just to be successful and then just see, just see yourself in every child or like see when you see a black child, see your child, regardless of what color you are. Because sometimes I feel like when I see all these black boys and black girls and something's happening, I'm interrupting this. I'm running over here reteaching. Hey, maybe we could do that. Maybe we could revisit this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what do they call it? Call them in, not call them out. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to really um, ask ourselves how complicit um, am I being in contributing to educational inequities? And just like I asked myself that, I'm like, what? And then that, that's when I just keep keep going and keep reminding myself because sometimes it's hard to, to continue to, to keep interrupting and trying to use my voice and get others to use their voice for our, for our kids. But um, I'm never going to give up. Um, and I appreciate this space with all of you. You're all amazing. Um, and I'm going to mute now because I, I know something, someone is about to scream. So, <laughs> Thank you, Jasmine. I think if, um, if we were, I were to end with anything, it would be that I'm really excited about us taking our power back. Um, mm -hmm. So when we talk about, you know, even advocating for our kids, um, one thing that I feel like I saw during COVID and kids being home at remote, parents were able to see what was happening in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And from that, a lot of people started speaking up. And so they were speaking up about the teacher-student interactions. They were speaking up if they felt like the work was rigorous enough. It gave them, it gave us a lens unintentionally though, I believe. For people to, for parents to get re-engaged with what's going on. And so I think that bit, if we could continue as a community um, to continue to get in the school's business, right? Ask questions, ask questions. Like there's no reason, the, our, our job as educators is to make sure that our parents understand we're in service to the community, right? And to the kids. And so ask questions, get in the business. And if, if, if you at least find one person, find one person that has come through for you before, a lot of times people are so open to having conversations outside of school time, right? If they know that you're invested and they know you really want to learn and understand about something, take that power back. You parents are the, they're experts on their own kids and we're experts on education. And so we go through, we collaborate and bring those two together. And I think once we realize that the power to influence the schools and what our kids are experiencing in schools really goes back to the community, goes back to the home. Um, and that is ours to own and take over. Thank you. Dr. Curry. 
I thank you all so much, uh, my sisters. Um, I would say, um, like, seek and find out about organizations that advance young Black lives and support them, donate to them, volunteer um, at them. I remember the Harry Potter series. My son Joshua used to read it when he was younger. And there's a time where Harry Potter's mother is killed. And right before she dies, she marks him with this mark, a sign of her love to protect him. And even though I know that's fantasy, but I do believe that that every adult has the capacity to love and um, shield, give this love of protection to our to our children. I think that's our greatest superpower. So go and use your superpower to love black children. And the face of strong conversations, Dr. Carolyn Strong. Oh boy. Um, I, I think that I appreciate all of you for answering my call to action and coming here today to have this conversation. And I think that we've gotten some great takeaways from this, but my biggest thing is always this. If you build a house on a defective foundation, it will be tolerable, it will be livable, but it will never be stable. And I believe that that's part of what's happening here. When public education was started and enacted, Black people were not even yet considered fully human. We were still being counted as three-fifths of people when this incarnation of public education first came about. And what we've done is try and shift something for us to make it the best that we can make it for us. But it will never truly be for us until we rebuild the system and are included from the very beginning. So what we're doing now is great because this is what we have to work with. And we're gonna take what we have to work with and make it the best for our students that we can. But the issue is so deeply ingrained and systemic that in order for us to be truly included, we're gonna have to start over. And COVID gave us the opportunity to do that. And we just didn't take it. Always amazing, amazing and passionate words from Dr. Strong. Before we leave, I, I know people who are watching are gonna wanna hear more from all of you. So this is your moment for shameless self-promotion. <laughs> what do you have coming up? Where can people find you? Anyone, anyone? Websites, social media? Uh, Dr. Curry got a book. What, what's the book? <laughs> uh, yes, Becoming Interrupters. Uh, the book is coming out in April. Um, yeah. It is written by uh, Steve Zerberman, Katie Smith, and Tanya Perry, and I, along with two other um, educators, are contributing uh, writers. But it's a book about um, how do we teach our young people to actually be uh, interrupters, and how can we um, empower teachers to interrupt in their in their own buildings. And uh, I am on Twitter at, at Dr. Tina Curry. Um, so thanks so much. Give us give us the title. You better sell your book, Dr. Curry. <laughs> What's the title of that book again? Put that in the comments. Comment. Drop <laughs> that link in the comments. <laughs> okay. Jasmine, Mia, Dewan. 
I'm writing a dissertation. It's just nothing cute right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you want to see me, if you want more of my rants and, um, you know, one day I might be talking about fashion and next day I might be talking about, um, you know, educational inequality and black girls. You can follow me on Twitter at D-M-A-C-L-E-E. That's D-M-A-C-L-E-E on Twitter. Um, and I engage all kinds of foolishness and chicanery about education and more. Ooh, I just, as, as we speak, I just followed you. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for, for me, you can find me at your uh, local urban high school district. <laughs> I am so, well, I mean, we're, I'm in the trenches all day long if we just want to keep it a buck. So, <laughs> but um, I have really been expanding lately and have, uh, funny enough, as we talk about parents, um, have been delving deep into parent education. Um, and in restorative practices. So I do not have a website, but I do have an email. And if anyone is interested or if they're looking for um, a speaker or for some consultation or just for some level of support, um, J, letter J for Jasmine, styles, like my last name, consultation at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. What about you, Mia? Well, I'm I'm not look, I feel old, but I'm not really on social media like I, I know I need to be and I need to start doing some more. But um I'm on LinkedIn and I do I did get um accepted to present two sessions at ASCA, the American School Counseling a Counselor Association, which will have its uh, national conference in Austin, Texas this July. So I'll be doing two sessions. Um, one is um, about, you know, talking about race because we don't want to talk about race sometimes when we're school counselors or through going through school counselor education programs, but it impacts so many students, but we don't want to talk about it because it makes us, you know, nervous. And then the other session um, is responding or how we repair harm after microaggressions. Thank you. You can find me at TamaraWinfreyHarris.com at what Tammy said on Twitter, Tammy, T-A-M-I. Tammy with the blue check. And, and Tamara Winfrey Harris on Instagram. And should you be so kind, you can buy my books. So the Sisters Are All Right, Letter, hmm, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America or Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping Into Your Power. Both and excellent. And you can always find Dr. Strong here at Strong Conversations on several platforms, on yes. YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. Am I forgetting anything? Uh, no, you're not forgetting anything. But before you sign out, I do have one thing to say. Um, the next Strong Conversation is going to be about the impact on uh dark-skinned Black women and colorism, mm -hmm. and we are looking for panelists, and we do have a moderator, so if that is something anybody listening wants to come and chat with me, I promise I'll make it fun and interesting. Um, come and chat with me about colorism. You know where to find me, and I would love to have you, and, and I will make it as awesome as I can, and we are going to have psychologist intervention, so it will not just be us sitting around talking about stuff without 
any coping mechanisms being provided. So if that is something that you want to come in and converse with me about, you know where to find me because Tammy just told you. <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me moderate your space, Dr. Strong. And I am so excited that I got to meet all of these amazing people. Thank you all for joining us and good evening. You've been listening to Strong Conversations, hot takes from a cultural firebrand. Make sure to like our Facebook page at Strong Conversations or follow us on Twitter at Dr. Carolyn Strong. Until next time, have a good one.